Interest rates are spiking. You see it in your own life, mortgages, credit cards, your monthly budget, which if you're like most Americans is probably strained right now. Late Thursday, we met President Biden at the White House. It had been a rough week and we could see it on him. Oh gee, he'd had a rough week. Americans aren't just having a rough week. They're having rough years. People are suffering right now. They're having an extremely hard time. All while we're adding $2 trillion in new debt this year. It's a debt bomb. I'm going to give you a reasonable, realistic, workable path out because I do think it exists, but I also believe firmly that that, that window is closing. I also asked her whether America could afford to support two foreign wars at the same time, and a similarly clear answer to that, absolutely. And this was why she said absolutely. The American economy is doing extremely well. Um, inflation has been high and it's been a concern to households. It's come down considerably. At the same time, we have about the strongest labor market we've seen in 50 years with 3.8% unemployment. We've seen a burgeoning of investment, especially in manufacturing, um, an industrial renaissance in the United States. Hmm. Janet Yellen, Janet Transitory Yellen. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment if you're not uh, familiar with her dismal track record. Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, somebody who is the successor to Alexander Hamilton, one of the greatest Americans to ever live, founding father who not just helped create this nation, but helped create a nation that would become an absolute economic superpower. Uh, that Janet Yellen, who has no business in that office, nor in any of her previous extremely important offices, such as chairman of the Fed, she says that we can certainly afford two wars at once. Is that true? Is it? What, what do the data and evidence say? Uh, not only is it not true, not only is Janet Yellen blatantly lying through her teeth because she absolutely has to know better, than to say something as absurd as that, is that the United States can afford two additional new wars, that the American taxpayer can and should finance those wars. She has to know better. And the actual reality, as revealed by the numbers, by the prices out there in the market, and, and numbers and prices don't lie, okay? Price is truth. That's something that if you followed my work, you've heard me say over and over, way back when I was just a financial commentator on CNBC for years before I got into the realm of politics and culture, I would always say that on air, that you know, price is truth. We can think what we want about a company, but the price of the stock is the price and it is truth. Um, and that is also true in the realm of economic analysis, that the, the numbers don't lie. And the reality, the actual on-the-ground reality, the tangible, real-world circumstance of the American economy is that it is in a dismal state right now. It is decelerating, meaning it is trending downward and toward ever more risks. And, and this is the most important point of all that I want to convey to you today, and I want to do it not just with my words, but also with, with numbers and charts and graphs. We are in the early stages, my friends, unfortunately, of the explosion of a debt bomb. It is a slow motion explosion rather than all at once, but it is an explosion of a debt bomb. A debt bomb that is not only putting the United States into a precarious and in some ways untenable economic position just for the coming days and weeks and months, 
But in fact, for years, and I would argue potentially even for decades to come, of slow growth, lower prosperity, higher inflation, tremendous economic upheaval, anxiety, uncertainty, all of which will spill over not just from the economic realm, but will spill over into the societal realm, can bring chaos, in fact, to this country. We are experiencing a debt bomb explosion right now. It's not too late, like a lot of negative forces in American society and politics and culture, it's not too late, but the clock is ticking uh, and the hour is late. It's not too late, but the hour is late, like so many of the crises that we face. If corrective action is not taken imminently uh, and decisively, much of the damage that is now being done will be irreversible. Um, that's the, the unfortunate reality. So I am here, unlike Janet Transitory Yellen, to tell you the truth. And why do I call her Transitory Yellen? Because she's been lying for years. Uh, once the inflation started to really build under Joe Biden because of his absolutely exorbitant borrowing and spending, the inflation found its birth, uh, its origination, unfortunately, in the lockdowns and, and the orgy of borrowing and spending in 2020. It was then made massively worse by Joe Biden, who came in in 2021. And even though the panic to the pandemic was, was by then receding, and I say it's the, the panic is what matters. Remember this, folks. The pandemic didn't do this to us, put us in this terrible position we're in financially. Uh, the panic in reaction to the virus, the, the massive overreaction, the panic is what induced and compelled these economic challenges that we now continue to face. Joe Biden greatly exacerbated all of those challenges and all those problems in 2021 by continuing to borrow and spend as if the United States was still in full-on war mode, essentially. I mean, realize that. We have never, ever spent and borrowed like this in peacetime in all of American history. And even when we did it in wartime previously, once the war was over, we wound it down incredibly quickly. Uh, the opposite is happening now. The panic, it seems, is gone, although there's some leftists who would still have us be panicked about the virus. But the panic is over, thankfully. American life is almost entirely back to normal, and yet the absolutely insane levels of borrowing and spending persist and in some cases accelerate. And by the way, I'm not going to put all of the blame on people like Janet Yellen and Joe Biden because a lot of the, the blame belongs uh, to the collaborationist Republicans, the D.C. uniparty adherents who happen to have an R after their name. I'm talking about people like Mitch McConnell, who have enabled, encouraged, and collaborated with this economic debt bomb, which now imperils the entire U.S. economy and your prosperity. So let's, uh, let's dive further into uh, what Janet Yellen said there. Let's deconstruct what she said. Let's get into some of the numbers uh, that back my thesis, which is that this debt bomb is exploding in slow motion and that it's incredibly dangerous and it's going to get far worse if we don't take significant policy reform action. So some of the things she said there. First, she said the economy is doing extremely well. Hmm extremely well. Well, let's go to some charts because that would sure be news uh, to most regular Americans. Let me show you a chart. Uh, this goes back five years of Investors Business Daily, their economic optimism index. Uh, most of you probably know the, the fantastic newspaper Investors Business Daily. So they have been doing this poll for very many years, and I'm showing you the last five years of data on economic optimism. So this is what you, regular Americans, think about the economy. Not what Janet Yellen tries to tell us from on high is the state of the economy, but the actual kitchen table reality as experienced by regular Americans. If you look at this chart, you can see that unfortunately, 
Uh, it is a demonstrable downtrend from the upper left to the lower right. And in fact, just hit new lows for this move. And in fact, for over a decade, you see five years of history there. This is a low for over a decade. Note too, if you go back, uh, look at the plunge lower in the spring of 2020 as America was locked down, not surprisingly, pessimism pervaded and, and optimism uh, tanked. We are far lower now on the Investors Business Daily Survey than we were in the spring of 2020. Think about that. When we were literally locked in our homes and a lot of Americans uh, you know, fearing for their life unnecessarily uh, because this virus, while it was very serious, uh, was only material for the already weakened or the already very aged. But regardless, the point is there was such widespread pessimism that it's almost hard to fathom that Americans believe they are worse off now economically than they were then. But that is, again, the reality on the ground, not the world that we wish it to be, but the world as it actually is. And we as grown adults, unlike Janet Yellen, we have to deal with the world as it is not the world that we want it to be or that some narrative concoction out of Washington, D.C. or the corporate media pretend that the world is. We don't live in a pretend world. And if we're going to be adults and if we're going to fix this and return prosperity to this country and get out of this debt bomb mess that we are in, we need to be realists. And we need to take a cold and dispassionate look at the situation we're in. And then we need to, to come up with workable solutions, which I'm going to give you. And by the way, I'm going to throw a lot of charts at you today. Okay. A lot of charts. Anybody who follows my work knows Cortez likes charts. You know, you invite me over for dinner. Most folks show up. Uh, they might bring wine or bring some flowers. I show up and bring charts to your house. But I promise you that I'm going to explain these charts in a very layman's term. So if you're not an economist, if you don't follow financial markets closely, uh, if this isn't your uh, your bailiwick, th this area, if this isn't your expertise, believe me, I'm going to explain this in a way that is totally intelligible for you. Because, of course, even if you don't follow this, the economy matters for everyone. And, and for the vast majority of citizens and voters, it is the number one issue, understandably, the number one issue when it comes to public policy and politics and, frankly, just their life, right? It's, it's you know, for all of us, uh, it is a, a primary concern, particularly in an age like this where, as Investors Business Daily chart shows us, optimism, unfortunately, is tanking. Now, Janet Yellen also said there that we are in the middle of an industrial renaissance. An industrial renaissance. Is that true? Huh. Okay. Let's take a look. Let's go to the tape. Let's take a look. Uh, this is the United States LMI. That is the Logistics Managers Index. Logistics, meaning trucking, shipping, uh, the moving of stuff, effectively. Okay. This is an, an index that I paid a lot of attention to during my 25 years on Wall Street. Because when, when stuff is getting moved, when things are moving, generally, it's a very good leading indicator that the economy is moving and it's going to be doing better in the coming weeks and months. Because when the ports are busy, uh, when the trucking companies are busy, when the rails are busy, uh, we know that, that it is to meet consumer demand that is building. And then, of course, the inverse is also true. So let's look at the logistics managers index, because if we're in an industrial renaissance, uh, by its very definition, industrial means the making of things, right? P producing tangible goods. All those goods need to be moved. And of course, we should see then, if Janet Yellen's telling the truth, which she rarely does, uh, that the LMI is moving upward. Instead, we see exactly the opposite. And note there, uh, I've highlighted for you when Joe Biden took office. He took office, you know, again, predictably, this index tanked into early 2020 as America locked down. It then soared back to life. And what I often referred to it at the time when I was campaigning for Donald Trump's reelection, I often referred to that as the Trump boom 2.0, that America was, was surging back to life 
uh, all throughout 2020 from basically the summer on, but particularly in the fall. So Joe Biden inherited from Donald Trump an economic handoff that was really auspicious um, and and would have been hard to screw up if he had just stayed as he campaigned, if he had just stayed in his basement, things would be fine in the American economy. Realize that. If he did nothing, literally nothing, most of what I'm talking to you about today that is negative about the economy and the debt bomb uh, would be would be just fine. But of course, he didn't do nothing. So he took takes office, inherits this upward momentum, uh, and proceeds to absolutely squash it, as shown by the charts and evidence. And again, not Steve Cortez's opinion, uh, but this is logistics managers, the people who work in this industry, in shipping, on the ground, telling us uh, that the the trend, unfortunately, has been incredibly, incredibly negative. Now, uh, the corporate media, unfortunately, though, uh, covers for not just Janet Yellen, but really covers for anybody on the left, anybody in the ruling class, anybody, because again, there's collaborationist Republicans involved here, uh, covers for them and, and particularly covers for Joe Biden and tries to ignore largely what should be the biggest story in America, which is that Americans are enduring an incredibly tough economy, especially Americans of modest means, um, and that their outlook going forward is even more negative uh, than their opinion of, the, of their current state, that things are bad, in other words, and they are going to get worse. And of course, that pessimism realizes this patriots can become self-reinforcing, just as confidence begets confidence, which, uh, which encourages and engenders growth, the same true on the downside. The more pessimistic people get, the more self-reinforcing uh, you know, there's a virtuous cycle and then there's a vicious cycle. The more self-reinforcing that vicious cycle can become on the downside. So the corporate media tries very, very hard constantly to either ignore the issue entirely or when they do have the honesty to bring up the issue, uh, to couch it in terms that are protective of Joe Biden because almost the entire mainstream media views its job now not as being journalists, not as being fact finders and truth tellers, not as being storytellers, but instead uh, as being public relations agents for Joe Biden and for the ruling class generally. Realize that. I'm going to show you here one particularly terrible example from a 60 Minutes interview of Joe Biden. Recognized, too, by the way, 60 Minutes built up a massive audience and, and really a fantastic reputation. It used to be the gold standard for TV news journalism, particularly for investigative journalism. And they did amazing work for many, many decades and re were rewarded for that work with gigantic television audiences. They still have a fairly large TV audience, um, but they have completely left the realm of doing real journalism and instead engage in exactly the kind of PR that I'm talking about. Let's have a look here. Late Thursday, we met President Biden at the White House. It had been a rough week, and we could see it on him. Mr. Biden will be 81 next month, and he has said that when he's tired, his lifelong stutter can creep back in. But he wedged us into his schedule. Okay, so Scott Pelley, who I will say this, he's got a fantastic voice. One of the best voices in television. That's about all that I will say kind about Pelley uh, and the rest of the, of the CBS News gang and, and, and the 60 Minutes gang. You know, again, a show that has a great inheritance uh, and, and still lives sort of on, you know, on fumes, the fumes of its former self and still has, I think, too high a rec uh, reputation and, and is held in too high esteem by a lot of Americans. Hopefully that's changing now uh, as Americans completely lose trust in corporate media. Uh, but note there some of the things that he said as a setup for an interview with Joe Biden, an interview which was miserable, by the way, if you actually watch the interview, and an interview where Scott Pelley failed at every turn that Joe Biden uh, expressed himself 
either in some confused fashion or simply lied, simply, you know, looked at him and, and lied through his teeth. Uh, total lack of follow-up, total lack of challenging. Um, whether Pelly was unprepared or unwilling or some combination of both doesn't really matter. The point is, it was as softball an interview as you could conduct with the President of the United States, particularly during a time of such heightened uh, economic um, pessimism right now, of, of such low regard for the economy. So know what he says there, though, when I say being protective. I mean, you, you couldn't ask for a better setup if you're a politician than this. He had had a, quote, Rough week. Oh, gee, he'd had a rough week. Well, there's a lot of rough weeks when you're the commander-in-chief of the biggest superpower on Earth. There's a lot of rough weeks. He said he is, quote, 81, and he excused that when he's tired, his lifelong stutter returns. Joe Biden has not had a stutter for decades. Uh, he overcame that, and good for him, right? I mean, really, good for him that he overcame that as a child. But anyone who has watched Joe Biden, who has been in public life more than a half century, remember that, folks. He was elected in 1972. That's the year Steve Cortez was born, and I am not young. I have grown children, okay? Uh, and he was elected when I was in diapers in 1972. Anyone who has watched his career knows, uh, and this is one of the few kind things I'll say about him, is that he used to be a very eloquent man, very uh, now, I didn't agree with anything he said, basically, or you know, next to zero of what he said, but he said it eloquently. Um, he was a well-spoken politician. Uh, he had the Irish gift of gab, and this idea that his a stutterer is insane, and it's now being used as an excuse uh, for when he speaks totally unintelligibly. That's the reaction. Um, Pelly also says there, quote, we could see it on him as if, oh gosh, you know, he's taking it on for us, uh, right? Making him some sort of sacrificial lamb. He also said he wedged us in, like, oh gosh, he, he was able to fit us in. Oh, you mean the president of the United States who serves the 330 million American people somehow found time to speak directly to the American people, albeit through an incredibly imperfect vehicle of 60 minutes. He, he wedged us in. Thank you so much, Joe Biden, in between your countless beach vacations that you were able to fit us into your busy schedule, even though you had a, quote, rough week. Well, Americans aren't just having a rough week. Uh, they're having rough years. And again, I fear we'll have rough decades if we don't start to turn this economy around. So currently, the, the worst aspect of the debt bomb and what it has done to Americans is inflation. We are right now adding, this is, this is the current pace, we're adding $22 billion of new debt every single day at the federal level. Now, I don't like to use those kinds of terms. Uh, when you use billions and trillions, and I think when you use too many percentages for a lot of folks, uh, their eyes glaze over, understandably, right? And when you start using numbers where there's nine zeros and 12 zeros, it, it can become hard to, to understand in a tangible way. Well, what does this really mean, right? What does this mean for me? What does it mean for my family? So let's put that in family terms. Uh, per American household in the United States, we're adding $5,000 in new debt every single month. That's the reality. Federal debt. So think about your household, whether it's a household of just you, it's of one, or you've got a bunch of kids and it's a big household. Every single household in America adding $5,000 of new debt every single month. Every single month. And what is that explosion in debt causing? It's causing inflation which anyone could see coming, anybody with a mind, anybody who was being honest, anybody with an understanding of economics and economic history knew that what we started to do in March of 2020 was going to be massively inflationary. Many mistakes were made 
in 2020. Bipartisan mistakes, Republicans and Democrats both supporting the beginnings of this debt crisis, and then massively accelerated once Joe Biden took office in 2021. And continuing to this day, by the way, the debt is still accelerating. This year's debt, 2023, is going to be roughly double last year's debt of 2021. And we're not in a virus crisis anymore. We're not in the throes of an unnecessary and unscientific panic. And yet, the debt continues to grow. And what is it doing? It is fueling massive inflation, something the United States has not really dealt with in any significant systemic way in over four decades. You have to go back all the way to the 1970s and the early 1980s to see the last bout of systemic inflation in the United States. Let me show you this in chart form. And this comes from Fred, which I've mentioned before in one of my uh, prior episodes. If you want to look at economic data, Fred is operated. It's an online free system operated by the St. Louis Fed. It has just a treasure trove of economic data. And because the Fed is our public agency, it's all free. So it's a place where you can get uh, if you want charts, if you want to take a look at things, a uh, lot of history, uh, very user-friendly. I get a lot of my information there. So this is from the St. Louis Fed. This is the Consumer Price Index on services. So this is inflation on services. And the reason I point out services is that this tends to be much stickier than other inflation. So inflation in food and energy can be really punishing, particularly people of modest, modest means. And I think that's where most people pay the most attention, right, is how much am I paying at the pump? How much am I paying at the grocery store? Understandable. But realize that services inflation, the things you pay for services in your life, uh, accounting services, uh, healthcare, which is absolutely soaring, um, legal services, anything in your life, right, that you need, uh, uh, help with your computer, technical assistance. We are a service-based economy. 70% of the U.S. economy is services-based. Most advanced economies are majority services. That inflation tends to be much stickier, meaning uh, that when when someone who is in, ser in, in the service industries in your life, say, for example, your accountant, when they raise rates, they almost never then lower rates after that, right? It's much, much stickier. That's why I want to show you this. So if we look at this chart, and again, I put in, in shaded uh, form there, when in highlighted form, when Biden took office, and look at it absolutely soaring higher. Now, has it come down a bit in recent months? Yes, it has. And let me explain come down, though, meaning the inflation is still insane, right? It's still almost 6% inflation in services. So prices are not going down the rate of increase has slowed a bit and never be fooled. Corporate media loves to say, that oh, prices are going down or inflation is going down. No, the rate of inflation uh, is coming down slightly, slightly. But if you look on that chart where my arrow is drawn, it's immaterial in comparison to the vault higher. And I would also argue, now we'll see, but my projection is it's going to turn higher again from here that services inflation. But but never be fooled. And again, corporate media tries to do this constantly. Certainly the Biden White House tries to do this constantly. Never be fooled into believing that inflation is over simply because it's less bad, right? Um, in other words, it would be, let me just use a really simple crude analogy. Okay, you're getting your butt kicked by somebody, all right? And they are punching you, kicking you, and they have a club, okay? And they're kicking the crap out of you. If they stop using the club, but they keep kicking you and punching you, is it better? Sure, it's better, but it's still pretty bad right? You're still getting beaten up, right? That would be a proper analogy for the rate of inflation is, is slightly less bad, uh, but by no means are prices actually going down. So that's the reality. Now, uh, I think this is important. Within the media bias, though, again, we do see some segments, not enough, but we do see some segments uh, of, of, of truth-telling, of, of actual honest reporting. And let me show you one from CNN here. 
this is an opinion piece, mind you, uh, not from CNN's newsroom, uh, but at least they allowed it to be published on CNN. By the way, I worked for CNN for two years, and I'm a prolific writer. Anybody who follows me know I, I write a lot of op-eds. I write one every few days, and I have for years. And even though I worked for CNN, in total, I got one opinion piece published on CNN's website. And CNN's website gets massive traffic. So I was very eager to get a lot of opinion pieces published on there. And I thought it would be good for CNN to allow a, a dissenting voice, to allow a right-wing figure like me that they employ, that they pay. Uh, and I wasn't asking for any extra pay to, to put my pieces up on their website. Uh, they made it so brutal on me, the editing process. I mean, it would go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, that they would just kill a piece and, and say, oh, it's no longer newsworthy. Well, it was newsworthy when I gave it to you, but they kept coming back with so many uh, revisions and corrections that I literally got one ever up on the CNN website. In any case, um, here it says, Washington is quickly hurtling toward a debt crisis. Uh, yes, we are hurtling toward a debt crisis. I would also say that's putting it mildly, but again, kudos to CNN for at least allowing somebody, I don't know who Brian uh, Riedel is, but at least allowing him to come in and state what is manifestly true um, is, is and it's not just a crisis. I would argue, again, it is a debt bomb. Now, let me show you what I mean. Net treasury influence uh, issue, excuse me, in issuance, not influence. Um, this chart shows you what has happened in treasury debt uh, going back 10 years, a little more, going back to 2012. And you can see that generally, uh, that, as that chart shows, Generally, we were a little under a trillion dollars a year, fairly predictably, in new debt. Now, that's problematic. Running trillion-dollar deficits year after year is problematic. But in an era of low interest rates and low inflation, it was at least a manageable uh, crisis. I, I think it was a crisis, but it was a manageable one. It wasn't an intense, out-of-control crisis, a, you know, a risk to the very prosperity of America. We then see the year 2020 there, the, the massive spike upward, uh, again, a mass, a huge mistake in 2020. Uh, our our entire panicked reaction to the virus has such severe consequences, including the economic and fiscal consequences of spending that much money to try to get people to stay home, shoveling that much money to big pharma, uh, and and the unfortunate reality is we massively overborrowed and overspent. But thankfully. Uh, and again, it was it was war type spending. It was that level of, of borrowing and spending. Thankfully, you can see that the next couple of charts, year 2021, 2022, it was starting to come back down. We were starting to get back to some place of sanity until the very last bar there, the darker one, 2023. And we see now that's only through September, but by the end of the year, we're going to have $2 trillion of new debt, which is just about double what we had last year even though we are no longer in the throes of a crisis, or at least a panic, which is really the crisis. Again, it was our reaction, not the actual virus. So we're in a dangerous place. The trend is worsening, and the economy, which is almost always the number one issue for American voters, the economy uh, presents enormous challenges to regular folks. Let, let me just state that, too, you know, here from the heart this is just an academic discussion. It's not just, oh gosh, you're getting economic policy wrong and I can show you my charts and here's why. You know, all that is, is accurate and it's valid and we, we, we need to pursue that line of thinking and reasoning. But the, we can't forget about the human aspect here. Uh, the, the idea that regular people are suffering. I mean, they are suffering. 
people of modest means who don't have significant savings, who don't have a lot of money in the stock market, who haven't benefited in any way from inflation, maybe don't own their home, uh, their renters. Rent, re the, the median rent in America just passed $2,000 a month for the first time ever, the highest by far in all of U.S. history and accelerating higher. Uh, people are suffering right now. They're having an extremely hard time paying, not just paying for the staples of life, you know, forget about luxuries, forget about some of the discretionary items. They're having an extremely hard time affording the staples of life, things like rent and utilities and food and clothing. So we need to remember the, the human aspect of this, right? Uh, it's bad. And unfortunately, uh, it's going to get worse. Let me show you this also. Uh, and again, I, I'm not just going to scare you. I'm going to give you a reasonable, realistic, workable path out because I do think it exists but I also believe firmly that that, that window is closing. Uh, that door uh, of opportunity for America is closing. And so action is needed and then action soon. So let me show you this next chart. This is uh, another one from the St. Louis Fed. This is federal government tax receipts. And this is giving you year over year change. So the percentage change from a year ago. You can see there in 2020, that's the lowest part of the chart until now, until the current in 2020, not surprisingly, again, tax receipts absolutely plunged as economic activity was ground to a halt during the panic uh, reaction to the virus in early 2020. We can then see that federal receipts soared higher. Again, not surprising as America reopened aggressively, tax receipts soar higher. But what has happened since? And if you look at my red arrow down, absolutely collapsed and now down 10% year over year. The worst collapse that chart goes back 10 years, the worst chart the collapse in federal government tax receipts ever, ever. And much worse, again, like a lot of these charts, even worse than the worst levels of the lockdowns. So think about that. We are soaring our debt at the same time, if, if the government were a business, right, the business is borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. At the same time, uh, the business is bringing in less and less and less, right? This is a toxic combination, taking on more and more debt, bringing in less and less money uh, from regular taxpayers. That is the reality right now in the US. And again, not my opinion. These are the numbers. This is the truth. Price is truth. Price doesn't lie. So what does this mean then if we're borrowing this much? Well, when you're borrowing uh, as much as $2 trillion per year now, guess what happens to the interest on the federal debt? Because again, we're adding that $2 trillion to all the tens of trillions that we have previously. Right now, total debt, roughly $33 trillion and rising. So the debt's rising. The interest rate we have to pay on the debt is rising very, very dramatically. 10-year treasury yield, which is the benchmark interest rate for the entire world. Everything in your life, even if you don't know it, is based on 10-year treasury yield. Uh, your, your mortgage, your car loan, your credit cards, any interest rate in the world is benchmarked to the, the North Star of bond trading, which is the 10-year Treasury yield, which just crossed 5% to the upside for the first time since 2006 because of that. So when you combine a growing debt with a higher and higher interest rate, again, just think of this in mortgage terms, okay? Let's say you keep buying a more and more expensive house, even though you can't really afford it, and the mortgage rate continues to go higher and higher. Mortgage rates just crossed 8%, which is a two-decade high. Uh, you're putting yourself into quite a pickle, aren't you? And your monthly fee is going up and up. Well, the monthly fee, the, the debt service cost is reflected in this chart. This is interest payments on the federal debt 
uh, quarterly, and we're annualizing it here. This also happens to come from the St. Louis Fed. Uh, and that number now is north of a trillion dollars. That is the, the reality. Uh, spending more, and I'll, I'll show you this chart in a bit, spending more than we are on defense. Let me also tell you this. This is incredibly important. As bad as that chart is, it's going to get a lot worse. It's going to get far worse. Why? Because a lot of the debt that we have of that $33 trillion right now is, is um, financed at very low interest rates, which we did have historically before the 2020 panic and before all this exorbitant borrowing and spending. As we have to roll over that debt, we can't pay the debt down, we don't have the money, okay? So we have to roll it over, meaning as that bond matures or that treasury note matures, we have to issue a new one. And we're issuing them at far higher interest rates, meaning we're gonna start paying the debt service costs, which are already terrible, as evidenced by that chart, is going to get tremendously more dangerous and tremendously worse. That is the, the on-the-ground reality. Again, not the world as if we want it to be, but the world as it is. Um, I recently wrote an article about this, by the way. I mentioned that I do a lot of writing. I recently wrote an article on this at my Substack. Please take a look, stevecortez.substack.com. Um, economic calamity and political opportunity. Will the right seize the moment? Will we seize the moment? Uh, you know, I'm really not sure. You know, as... Uh, Here's the reality, though. Here's the reality. For the first time uh, in decades, Gallup polling and Gallup polling that goes back all the way to the 1950s shows that Republicans finally have the advantage over Democrats on issues of the economy. You might think, oh, it's always been that way. It actually has not. Um, but Republicans enjoy a substantial advantage right now over the Democrats on the topic of the economy. And I get into this in my article and can we seize the moment? Is this can we can we harness this moment successfully? And I and I get into all the ways that we can do that politically, and why I think it is so unbelievably important. So let's talk about what this means for you um, and for your monthly budget, which, if you're like most Americans, is probably strained right now. Um, and if it is strained, by the way, that's not your fault. That is a result of policy failures, mainly policy failures from Washington D.C. from people like Biden and McConnell. So what does it mean for you every month? Well, this chart from UBS shows monthly mortgage costs and what share of household income do monthly mortgage costs uh, demand. And financial planners, financial experts, personal financial experts generally say you should spend no more than 30% of your income on your housing costs, whether it's a mortgage if you're an owner or on your rent uh, if you lease your home, if you're a renter. And as you can see on this chart, which goes all the way back to 1990, a lot of history there, over, over 30 years of history, as you can see, uh, for a very long time, for most of U.S. history, that number generally for folks has been well below 30%. Now, you might say, hey, Cortez, I live in L.A. I have to spend more than 30%, and I always have had to spend, and I understand that. There are expensive parts of the country. But generally in the United States, thankfully, American citizens have been able to spend less and in some cases significantly less you know you can see on that chart the big downshift in 2007 and 8 um, into the early teens that's the housing crisis when housing price prices crashed and so the percentage of income that Americans had to spend on, on their housing also went went down significantly and that's why folks who did well in 07 08 who were really responsible with their money thankfully coming out of that recession they actually had a pretty good time right they were able to, to buy assets on the cheap or they were able to easily afford their mortgage um, and what we see now then, look all the way on the right side of that chart, is it is absolutely spiking, right? Above 40%. It's actually at 43% right now. 43% of income 
uh, median income to afford the median priced home in America. Totally, totally unsustainable, obviously massively above the 30% threshold, which is recommended as a ceiling uh, by anybody who's trying to be responsible with their budget. When you start spending 43% and climbing, right, perhaps even half of your income every single month just to house yourself and your family, right, just for the most basic element, elemental cost of life, you are in financial trouble. And you have very little money left over for the essentials of life. And you have no money left over for any luxuries of life or any, uh, any you know, real extravagance at all, even, even just a taste of it in your life. That's what that chart shows us right now. That is what is happening to you as a consequence of massive policy mistakes by people with names like Yellen uh, and certainly with names like Joe Biden. Monthly mortgage costs are absolutely soaring out of control. Housing affordability is at its worst level of all time. And that's, again, not this chart shows that very clearly, but on, on many metrics. Uh, and Goldman Sachs, which is the premier investment bank in the United States, has its own index on housing affordability and shows that by far, this is the worst of all time. Uh, because unlike 07, 08, when we had a housing crisis, right, and when the United States was in uh, a lot of economic trouble as it is now, housing prices crashed lower. Even though housing is unaffordable right now, Housing is not crashing lower. And you might say, well, why? Okay, now that's a complicated topic for another time. And perhaps we do an episode just on that. But I wrote an article, getting back to my Substack, I wrote an article about this on my Substack. I call it the housing conundrum. And I explain why, despite the fact that buyers can't afford houses, housing prices are not coming down the way they should in a normally functioning market and in a normally functioning economy. And there's a number of reasons for that. But I'll, let me table that issue for right now. Suffice it to say uh, that that housing affordability has never been worse. And it's not just housing. It's all kinds of things. Cars. I was actually pleasantly surprised. You might even say shocked that the New York Times had an article. Again, I'll, I'll give credit where it's due. Overall, corporate media has been miserable on these issues. But there are, there are moments uh, of, of truth telling. There are moments that are, that are commendable. On the New York Times, I was very surprised. Front page story about how out of reach cars are. Uh, cars have also never been less affordable than they are right now. Automobile affordability, like housing affordability, at its worst levels ever. And let me just give you one stat. You probably know this in your life. Uh, you certainly know it if you if you bought an automobile recently. Used cars are up 40%, as reported by the New York Times, up 40% since 2019. Think about that. Since the pre-panic, pre-pandemic levels, up 40%. That is insane. And that means that buying a new car, a new used car, uh, for the vast majority of Americans is just an impossibility, right? And they're just going to have to deal with their old car, even if it's not safe or even if it's not reliable or even if it's not pleasant. I mean, even if they need a bigger one because they've had more children. I mean, think of the spillover effects, right, of all of this for working class people who are really, really suffering, can't afford a house, can't afford a new car or a new used car, given what is happening right now. I mean, this really, really matters, folks. You know, again, these aren't just numbers on a board. Uh, these aren't just tickers in a stock market. These are human lives. And these are Americans who unfortunately uh, face tremendous economic strain and angst and anxiety right now and believe, I believe, I think for valid reasons, for, for evidence-based reasons, that this current predicament, this quagmire is going to get worse. Uh, that that worse days lie ahead, not better days. And that's not the American experience, right? It's not how this country has operated since 1776. It has been a place of boundless 
optimism, boundless optimism combined with incredible natural resources of this land, combined with, for the most part, um, throughout our history, really fantastic pro-capitalist, pro-enterprise, pro-small business policies, which produced um, a prosperity that the world had never seen. And a, and a constant belief, uh, again, based on evidence, a constant belief that your children will live better than you, that each generation, that the torch would be passed with an improvement in each generation. And, and that was the reality of America. That was the American experience. It's a, it's a big part of American exceptionalism, what makes this country so great and so truly exceptional among the nations of the world. We're losing it. We're losing all of that. The American people do not believe that their children are going to live a better life than they. And we know that, by the way, via polling. The highest number ever have a negative view. 79% of Americans say no, their children will not live a better life than they. By far the worst number on that index, and that has been polled. That's a Wall Street Journal poll that has gone back 30 years. Do you believe that your children are going to be better off than you? Uh, the answer probably is no, if you're like most Americans. And I'm not saying that to depress you. I'm not saying it to make you feel in any way badly or that you are responsible for that predicament. No, but I, I'm telling you that so that you are educated and aware and informed and armed with information to seek and to demand change because this, this has to be changed in American society. Now, speaking of change, let me tell you this. I firmly believe this. You know, populism, and I speak a lot about this uh, in my previous episodes, populism is ascendant, not just in the United States, but really all over the world. And populism is ascendant primarily because the garbage ruling class of the United States completely abused um, its advantages and in a, in a self-aggrandizing form worked only for its own benefit, for the benefit of the ruling class at the expense of regular working class Americans. And predictably, there has been an intense cultural and political backlash, a populist uprising politically against the ruling class. Uh, it started in many ways in terms of the economy with the Tea Party movement out of the 08-09 housing crisis. Uh, it found further buy-in and, and national political credence with the America First movement and the election of Donald Trump. And it continues to ascend higher in American society. I think it's very telling, for example, that the two most prominent Republican politicians in America, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, are both populist right-wingers, and, and they fully dominate Republican politics, and populist voters fully dominate Republican primaries. Now, in terms of legacy office holders, in terms of donors, uh, you know, is populism ascendant there? Not necessarily. I mean, I would argue that it's ascendant, but it's ascending very, very slowly. So we have a problem with legacy office holders who don't don't recognize what time it is in America and don't em embrace that kind of populist nationalist conservatism. But among voters, um, it is it is incredibly popular. But here's the thing about populism. Note. I'm not saying that while populism is ascendant, and I believe populism is going to be the dominant theme of politics today and in decades to come, uh, the populism of the left is also rising and ascending and, and very, very strong. And what I mean there, folks, is, and I, I think this is key, uh, patriots, is I believe that populism is inevitable in the United States, but it is very much an open question whether or not it will be a populism of the left, a la you know, Bernie Sanders and AOC, or it will be a populism of the right. And a populism of the right, I believe, 
that uh, believes in and, and demands protectionism, protection of American citizens against things like predatory trade from China, protection against uh, the, the wholesale mass trespassing invasion of our country via an open border, uh, protection against corporations who would abuse their workers and force them into cultural struggle sessions uh, to be demeaned if they happen to be white or even worse, happen to be a white male. Um, that the, the populist right movement is about protection, and we shouldn't be afraid of that word protectionism. It's been a dirty word in Republican politics for a long time, and it shouldn't be. No, we want to protect your prosperity. We want to protect your family. We want to protect your, uh, your nation. And that protection demands government action. I wish that we were in a place, frankly, where we could still sort of have this argument for small government liberty in America, but we are so beyond that. And we have, we have devolved and descended, unfortunately, so far into an oligarchy, the rule of the few. It's not a dictatorship, but it is rule of the few. The only way to fight these oligarchs and their pernicious power is, uh, unfortunately, through government action. Because, again, the garbage ruling class of the United States has been abusing working class people in this nation for many decades. Um, and the reaction, thankfully, is, is swift, but we need to make sure that the reaction culminates in a populist right political uh, 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 power structure that insists on populist economics combined with cultural conservatism. And I believe that is the recipe not just for winning elections, but also the recipe for saving this country, including saving our economy and getting us out of this debt bomb. Now, let me show you, by the way, by the numbers, what I mean about uh, the the unfortunate reality that regular, the masses of regular working class citizens are simply not participating in the economic spoils of America. And it is a situation that has been persistent for decades, but is massively worsening now. Uh, this is a chart from the Federal Reserve of US median household net worth by income level. That chart goes back to 1990. So we have over 30 years of history on that chart. The top line, the orangish looking line there, is the top 10%. So what is the, the net worth of households that are in the top 10% of the income bracket? And you can see there that their, uh, their net worth is about $2.7 million per household, uh, nearing $3 million per household for the top 10%. If we look at all families, that is the gray line there, it is rising very, very slightly lately, but it has been sidelining for decades. And if we look at the bottom 20%, it is actually slightly trending down. Okay, so all families, the low end, languishing, right? Languishing for decades, while the top end, uh, to the winners go the spoils, and unfortunately, almost all of the spoils, the top end running away from the rest of society. Now, folks, this is unsustainable. This is unsustainable. Now, uh, I don't believe in top-down redistribution. No, that's not the solution here. That's what the populist left will tell us. We'll just take from those top 10% and give it to the rest as if that will work. Um, and the failures of socialism and communism uh, are, are many, of course, and, and frankly, evil. So that is not the solution. The solution is how do we get that gray line and that blue line to rise by empowering those families? How do we create the policy conditions such that they can, again, afford their mortgage with 30% of their income or less, not 43% of their income and climbing? So let's talk about uh, some of the policy solutions. And by the way, I want to show you, since I've shown you so many scary charts, let me show you one. It's not a chart, really. It's a picture. But let me show you a picture here uh, of a happy American family. At least we assume they're happy with an American flag. Uh, it, it's a wonderful 
patriotic family out in nature. The reason I show you this, by the way, also is not just because I want to end um, in terms of before I get to solutions, uh, I want to end with a happy thought on your face and something that hopefully makes you smile and that inspires you. Is, you know, this is who we're fighting for, right? We're fighting for young American families. We want more children. Uh, we want more growth, more prosperity for those children and for those happy families in the United States. But I also show you this because this picture was used for an article that I wrote uh, over two years ago, back in July of 2021, about how do we get back to a place as a country where a single income can, a single middle class income can comfortably support an American family. That's something that was a reality in the United States for many decades. It was certainly the reality when I grew up. And uh, when I grew up in the 1970s and into the 1980s, I lived in a very middle class neighborhood in the south suburbs of Chicago. Almost everyone in my neighborhood and, and a lot of folks had a lot of kids, including my own family. I'm one of six. Almost everyone uh, didn't just survive, but thrived on a single income. And I'm not saying that we were wealthy. Again, middle class neighborhood, not a lot of luxuries, but all of the necessities uh, you know, paid for in life on a single income. It's something that we lost in American society. And we lost it primarily because of policy mistakes and policy failures, many of them related to globalism and, uh, and to, uh, to terrible trade deals and globalization on the economic front. There's other issues, of course, as well. And we need to return to a place where a single income, a single middle class income can comfortably support a family in the United States. And I lay out in that article in the National Pulse, which I, again, published way back in 2021. And I think I was one of the lone voices out there in politics at the time who was advocating for this. There are, there are, I'm not quite as lonely, but still sort of lonely. More people are buying into this notion and promoting this agenda and coming up with tangible, real world solutions, policy changes, where we can get back there. And let me also point out, by the way, though, it doesn't mean I will immediately be accused by critics, you know, particularly lefty or radical critics of, oh, Cortez, you're just trying to get back to, you know, 1950s America, and you want to put women uh, barefoot and pregnant back in the kitchen. Well, first of all, yes, I do want to get back to a 1950s America in a lot of ways, because I think we were a better country, and it's certainly a far happier society. But no, I'm not telling anybody how to live their life. And if families choose to have two workers, if they choose to have working mothers and fathers, fine. That is absolutely 100% their choice. Uh, but the point is, I want it to be a choice, not a compulsion, not a necessity. It is a necessity right now for most middle-income families that if they are to maintain their lifestyle at all, that there be two wage earners. And we know from polling, I actually pointed out in that article, we know from polling that the vast majority of women, not surprisingly, want to have the option. And even if they still choose to go into the workforce, they want to have the option uh, to be able to stay home. And we know, I think all of us know, that a family functions better uh, if, it can, if it can survive and thrive on a single income. So uh, it has to be our goal not just to defuse this debt bomb, which we're experiencing, but also we can't stop there. Uh, while we're doing that, while we're fixing the, the debt explosion, while we're trying to, to work our way out of a, of a terrible quagmire, of a terrible corner that we've been put in by the failures of Washington, D.C., let's also make sure that we are directing our policy to a place where middle America can thrive again, where that family uh, and families like it can, can absolutely flourish and prosper in this country. So let's talk about some of this, these solutions. The first one's relatively simple, and it's so simple you might even think it's not worth mentioning, but I'm going to mention it anyway because I think it's important. Stop spending. Stop freaking spending and borrowing so much, okay? First rule of holes, stop digging, okay? Stop it. Now, it's easier to say than do, clearly, in Washington, D.C., but uh, into these 2024 elections, I think you need to absolutely demand it. 
of your candidates, anybody running for office at the federal level, uh, needs to be pressed. What is your plan to reduce spending and to reduce the deficit and to reduce borrowing? What are you willing to cut? Because there has to be something. The answer can't be nothing. It can't be. This is economic suicide. It's slow motion economic suicide that our country is creating. $5,000, remember this, your household, whether you have a household of one or whether you have a wife and 10 kids, a household of 12, God bless you if you do, um, you are adding $5,000 of federal debt every single month. Do you think you're getting anything for that $5,000 out the door? Is your life getting $5,000 better every month? No, I think not. As a matter of fact, your life is getting worse while you're absolutely shoveling that money um, out the door and at, at a rate that is only going to go up. Listen, if we don't take corrective action, I will be doing this podcast in two years and I'll be saying, now you're adding $15,000 per month, okay? Because it is going to get so much worse. And that's not Steve Cortez's opinion. That's the, that's the reality of math, okay? Math is undefeated. It's like gravity. Math is undefeated. Math, math never loses, okay? The numbers dictate that with rising interest rates and a rising debt, that the debt service costs are skyrocketing and going to get far worse. But it's bad enough as it is right now. So stop spending. Stop the exorbitant borrowing and spending. And let me just state another time. The failures there have been bipartisan. This is not just an anti-Democrat issue. They've certainly been at the lead in the forefront of the exorbitant orgy of borrowing and spending. Uh, but there are plenty of collaborationist Republicans. Now, how do we get there then? Because it is so difficult. And particularly, how do we tackle the issues of entitlements? Uh, and again, I might do an entire show at some point on entitlements because this is something that has become, you know, Social Security particularly, the third rail of American politics, something that you're not supposed to touch, that you're not supposed to even talk about in American politics. Well, we do need to talk about it if we're going to be adults. And the reality is our entitlement system as presently constructed is totally unsustainable. Now, I think there are some, some very workable ways to fix it for the long term, but we have to get real and we have to be adults um, and we can't pretend that this elephant isn't in the room. But what's the way then, because it is so fraught with political peril, what's the way, what's the mechanism to get politicians, to get leaders to, to talk about this and to not just talk, but act uh, on entitlements and other spending. I really believe that we need uh, a commission in Washington, D.C. And this would take leadership from the presidential level. It will take somebody uh, elected to the White House in 2024, taking office in early 2025, who has a truly national view. And, and this is the advantage of a, of a president because congressmen in the House uh, and, and senators in the Senate are supposed to advocate for their district or for their state. There's nothing wrong with that inherently. But because they're advocating for their sometimes parochial interests and their sometimes peculiar local interests, um, they simply cannot reflect and, and to some degree should not reflect the demands and priorities of the country as a whole, whereas the president should serve the entirety of the United States. And so we'll need presidential leadership here to do this, to establish a commission, uh, a commission on debt, I would call it, or you know something like that. I'd love to be involved in this, by the way, if it actually happens. I'd love to do some of the messaging for it and some of the communications for it. Um, a bipartisan commission, uh, this has been done before. It was done with base closings by the U.S. Congress. Very smartly, I will say. You don't find me often saying, Something smart about the Congress did something smartly, but this was very intelligent. Uh, no one wanted to vote for closing a base in their district, right? It's just, you know, political suicide, right? 
Uh, and with the end of the Cold War, the United States had far too many bases that we were unnecessary, in many cases, redundant. And um, with the peace dividend that came from the, the victory in the Cold War, which was engineered by Ronald Reagan, we drew down defense spending, closed bases. But what we did is we set up a commission that take a, took a look, an independent commission, bipartisan commission that took a look at the bases and said, okay, these are the bases that make the least sense for our national security, for our financial situation, uh, so on and so on. Uh, and came up with a full list of bases to close and then presented the Congress with one up or down vote. We're not going to vote per, per base. We're not going to vote per district, right? Effectively giving cover to politicians in the House and Senate, very smart, um, so that they could not be blamed back home because why did you close down the base in our, you know, congressman? Um, so it made a lot of sense and, and worked and worked quite well. I think we need something very similar right now on uh, a, a commission on debt with one put together a comprehensive package of the spending that needs to be cut, the entitlement reforms which need to be instituted to try to save us from this debt bomb that is causing so much misery for regular Americans. Regular Americans who can't afford a house, who can't afford a car, who stress every time they pull into the gas station, who are stressed about when they see the utility bill come in the mail, how high is it going to be this time, right? Can I afford it this month? Stressed out Americans need relief. And looking bigger picture, uh, the way that I think we're going to get it is from exactly this type of commission with an all-in yes or no, up or down vote on a, on a variety, a, a, a spectrum of economic uh, reforms that are needed to try to save this country. And I'll tell you one other thing that we can do much nearer term is uh, restrict immigration. I really believe you know illegal immigration, of course, should be zero in the United States, and it's anything but zero. We're now north of 8 million illegal migrants that have crossed into the United States uh, under Joe Biden because he has not just tolerated the, the vaporizing of the U.S. border, but he has, in fact, incentivized this mass trespassing, this human tsunami of trespassers into the United States. Well, all of that uh, is not just a national security tragedy, not just a law enforcement crisis, uh, not just an, an absolute breakdown um, of American a destruction of American sovereignty, but it's also a huge economic threat to the United States because most of those migrants are coming here to work. They are lowering the wages of American workers by competing with them illegally and unfairly and unjustly in the labor market. Uh, one of the reasons that real wages, meaning your income adjusted for inflation, has crashed in the United States under Joe Biden, there's a lot of reasons for it, of course, the, the vaulting inflation, but also this massive influx of new workers which uh, have, have had an extremely deleterious effect upon real wages for American citizens, and particularly for blue-collar American citizens. Because in general, these, these migrants who are coming across, they're not competing for jobs at law firms and at investment banks. If they were, by the way, believe me, we'd close that border in two seconds if they were coming across and threatening the ruling class. If they were trying to take media jobs, if they were trying to take TV anchor jobs, do you know how fast the border would be shut? And do you know how, how different media coverage would be if that's what these folks were taking? No, but they're taking blue-collar jobs, and the ruling class in this country doesn't care about blue-collar Americans, about working-class folks, many of whom, by the way, happen to be black and brown Americans. Who are, who are suffering the worst, the most intensely from this invasion of the United States. But, uh, but stopping uh, the illegal, just absolute crisis that has been created uh, at the border would be not just sound policy for the United States in terms of reasserting our sovereignty, law and order, 
uh, national security, but also very economically beneficial, particularly to working class folks. I also would take it further, and this is not a popular position, but I believe it to be correct. I think even legal migration to the United States, legal immigration should be massively curtailed, if not suspended in total, um, and particularly work visas, particularly uh, work visas, things like H-1B and other visas, uh, which in many cases prioritize foreign workers over American workers, and in many cases for jobs that Americans are absolutely willing to do and, in fact, were doing before they were replaced by cheaper foreign talent. So uh, those are some some real solutions, okay? Stop the spending. Stop, dig stop digging. Okay, stop the spending, the barn and spending. Uh, let's establish a commission for the bigger picture fixes that are necessary to fix this debt bomb and then uh, immigration restrictionism. These are just some of the solutions. Uh, you know, there are more out there. There are other smart folks, obviously, who are who are thinking about this. But I implore you to to take this seriously. Uh, I'm sure you already do because if you're if you're not wealthy, you're hurting right now. That's the reality in American society. If you're not wealthy already, you are hurting. So. And if you're one of those people, if you're one of the, the, the masses of America, I don't need to tell you that things are tough because you know things are tough. Um, and you know, again, that you, uh, that you get squeamish about pulling into the gas station, right? Or you don't want to open the email that includes the invoice uh, that you're not sure that you can afford. Or you don't want to open that letter from the natural gas company because it's getting cold outside and the heat's going to be incredibly expensive this winter. You know, uh, Americans are stressed. And understandably, this isn't paranoia. It's not misplaced. It's not an exaggeration. Americans are unbelievably stressed, and even if the corporate media wants to pretend that this debt bomb doesn't exist, even if people like Janet Yellen and Joe Biden uh, want to try to play the Jedi mind trick on you and say, oh, these aren't the droids you're looking for, you need to know the truth, and you need to be armed with the information such that you can demand action out of policymakers, and we can start to fix this debt bomb. And then once we have started that process to go even further and make sure that we get back to a place where an American family can thrive on a single income. You know, folks, my background is the economy, so all of this is my is my wheelhouse. I take it very, very seriously. Uh, I'm passionate about these issues. You might say, gosh, passionate about the economy? Come on, Cortez. I am. I'm passionate about the economy. But more importantly than, than the numbers and the charts and the graphs and the policies and all that's important is what is it doing for human beings? What's it doing for families? And part part, it's not the only aspect, it's not the only ingredient, but part of making strong families in this country, of, re, uh, of resurrecting families, strong families in this country, is making sure that they have the economic resources to support themselves and making sure that they can not just survive, but in fact thrive in the United States. And there's far too little of that occurring right now. And there's far too little concern in Washington, D.C., in the corporate media and corporate boardrooms about the plight of regular Americans. So let's make it our task, our challenge, um, and our grand task to advocate for those working class Americans, to tell them the truth about this debt bomb, about this absolute crisis that is unfolding, and to give workable, real solutions to fix it and to save our floundering republic. Thank you for your time.